Section 3 of Stories and Pictures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Levine, Sunnyvale, California. Stories and Pictures by I. L. Parrots. Translated by Helena Frank. Section 3. In the Post Chaise. He told me everything at once, in one breath. I learned in little over a minute that he was Chaim, Yone Krubishvir's son-in-law, Beryl Konskevolya's son, and that the rich Mirinstin in Lublin was a relation on his mother's side, peace be upon her. But this relation lived almost like a Gentile, whether or not they ate forbidden food he could not tell, but that they ate with unwashed hands, so much he had seen with his own eyes. They had other queer ways besides. Long, colored claws were lying on their stairs. Before going in, one rang a bell. Figured table covers were spread about the rooms where people sat as if in jail, stole across them like thieves. Altogether, it was like being in a company of deaf mutes. His wife has a family of a kind in Warsaw, but he never goes near them. They're as poor as himself, so what is the good of them to him, huh? In the house of the Lublin relation, things are not as they should be. But at least he is rich, and whoso rubs against fat meat gets shiny himself. Where they chop wood, there are splinters. Where there is a meal, one may chance to lick a bone. But those others? Paupers. He even counts on the Lublin relations obtaining a place for him. Business, he says, is bad. Just now he's dealing in eggs, buys them in the villages, and sends them to Lublin, whence they are dispatched to London. There, it is said, people put them into lime ovens and hatch chickens out of them. It must be lies. The English just happen to like eggs. However that may be, the business, for the present, is in a bad way. Still, it is better than dealing in produce. Produce is knocked on the head. He became a produce dealer soon after his marriage. He had everything to learn, and his partner was an old dealer who simply turned his pockets inside out. It was dark in the post-chaise. I could not see Chaim's face, and I don't know to this day how he recognized a fellow Jew in me. When he got in, I was sitting in a corner dozing and was only awakened by his voice. I don't talk in my sleep. Perhaps I gave a Jewish groan? Perhaps he felt that my groan and his groan were one groan. He even told me that his wife was from Warsaw and did not fancy Kunskavalia. That is, she was born in Krubyshev, but she was brought up in Warsaw by that miserable family of hers, lost her parents. There she learned to know about other things. She could talk Polish and read German addresses fluently. She even says that she can play, not on a fiddle, but on some other instrument. And who are you? And he seized me by the hand. Sleep was out of the question, and he had begun to interest me. It was like a story. A young man from a small provincial town, a wife brought up in Warsaw. She's impatient of the small town. Something might be made of it, I reflect. One must know exactly how it all is, then add a little to it. It will make a novel. I will put in a villain, a convict, a bankruptcy or two, and rush in a dragon. I, too, will be interesting. 
I lean toward my neighbor and tell him who I am. So it's you, he said, is it? You yourself. Tell me, I beg of you, how do you find the time and attention required for inventing stories? Well, you see, how can I see? You must have inherited a large fortune and you're living on the interest? Heaven forbid, my parents are alive. Then you won in the lottery? Wrong again. Then what? I really did not know how to answer. Do you make a living by that? I gave a genuinely Jewish reply. Beh. And that's your whole parashaya, without anything additional? For the present. Oh, wah! Uh, how much does it bring in? Very little. A bad business, too. Knocked on the head. Bad times, sighed my neighbor. A few minutes silence, but he could not be quiet long. Tell me, I beg of you, what is the good of the stories you write? I don't mean to you, he amended himself. Heaven forbid! A Jew must earn a living if he has to suck it out of the wall. That's not what I mean. What will a Jew not do for a living? I am riding in the post-chaise and not in a opportunity because I could not hear of one. Heaven knows whether I'm not sitting on Sheikhnes. I mean, the people. What is the good of the stories to them? What is the object of them? What do they put into story books? Then, answering himself, I guess it's just a question of women's fashions, like crinolines. And you, I ask, have never dipped into a storybook? I can tell you, I do know a little about them, as much as that. He measured off a small piece of his finger, but it was dark in the chaise. Did they interest you? Me? Heaven forbid! It was all through my wife. This, you see, is how it happened. It must be five or six years ago, six, a year after the wedding. We were still boarding with my father when my wife grew poorly. Not that she was ill. She went about as usual, but she was not up to the mark. One day I asked her what was wrong. But really, he caught himself up. I don't know why I should bother you with all this. Please go on. My neighbor laughed. Is straw wanted in Egypt? Do you want my stories when you can invent your own? Do. Please go on. Apparently, you write fiction for other people and want truth for yourself? It does not occur to him that one might wish to write the truth. Well, he said, so be it. Well, repeated my neighbor, there's nothing to be ashamed of. We had a room to ourselves. I was a young man then, more given to that sort of thing, and I asked her what was the matter. She burst out crying. I felt very sorry for her. Besides being my wife, she was an orphan away from her home and altogether much to be pitied. Why so much to be pitied, I wonder? You see, my mother, peace be upon her, died about two years before the marriage, and my father, peace be upon him, did not marry again. My mother, may her merits protect us, was a good woman, 
and my father could not forget her. Well, a woman alone in the house. My father, peace be upon him, had no time to spare. He was away nearly the whole week in the villages. He traded in all sorts of things, whatever you please, eggs, butter, rags, hogs, bristles, linen. And you? I sat in the house of study and learned. Well, I reflected, a woman gets frightened all by herself. But why cry? No, she said. She was dull. Dull? What was that? I saw that she went about like one half asleep. Sometimes she did not hear when spoken to, or she seemed absent-minded and sat staring at the wall, stared and stared, or else her lips moved and never a sound to be heard. But as to being dull, all a woman's fancy, an unaccountable folk, women, a Jew, a man, is never dull. A Jew has no time to be dull. A Jew is either hungry or full. Either he has business on hand, or he is in the house of study, or asleep. If one has heaps of time, one smokes a pipe. But dull? Remember, I put in, a woman has no Torah. No cohol affairs, no 613 religious obligations. That's just where it is. I soon came to the conclusion that being dull meant having nothing to do, a sort of emptiness calculated to drive one mad. Our sages saw that long ago. Do you know the saying, idleness leads the mind to wander? According to the law, no woman may be idle. I said to her, do something. She said she wanted to read. To read sounded very queer to me, too. I knew that people who know how to write call learning leavdil, reading books and newspapers, but I did not know then that she was so learned. She spoke less to me than I to her. She was a tall woman, but she kept her head down and her lips closed as though she could not count to two. She was quiet altogether, quiet as a lamb, and there was always a look in her face as if a whole ship full of sour milk had foundered at sea. She wanted to read, she said. And what? Polish, German, even Yiddish, anything to read. In all Konskavalia, there wasn't a book to be found. I was very sorry. I, I couldn't refuse her. I told her I would get her some books when I went to see my relative in Lublin. And you have nothing, she asked. I preserve us. But what do you do all day in the house of study? I learn. I want to learn too, says she. I explained to her that the Gomorrah is not a storybook. It's not meant for women. That it had been said women should not study it. That it is Hebrew. I gave her to understand that if the Konskavalia people heard of such a thing, they would stone me. And quite right, too. I won't keep you in suspense, but tell you at once that she begged so hard of me cried, fainted, made such a to-do that she had her way. I sat down 
every evening and translated a page of the Gomorrah for her benefit. But I knew what the end of it would be. And what was it? You need not ask. I translated a page about goring oxen, ditches, setting on fire, commentaries and all. I held forth and she went to sleep over it night after night. That sort of thing was not intended for women. By good fortune, however, it happened that during the great gale that blew that year, a certain book peddler wandered out of his way into Conscavalia, and I brought her home 40 pounds weight of storybooks. Now it was the other way about. She read to me, and I went to sleep. And to this day, he wound up, I don't know what is the use of storybooks, at any rate for men. Perhaps you write for women? Meanwhile, it began to dawn. My neighbor's long, thin, yellow face became visible with a pair of black-ringed, tired-looking red eyes. He was apparently anxious to recite his prayers and began to polish the windowpane, but I interrupted him. Tell me, my friend, don't take it amiss. Is your wife content now? How content? She is no longer dull? She has a stall with salt and herrings, one child at the breasts, and two to wash and comb. She has a day's work blowing their noses. Again he rubs the pain, and again I question. Tell me, friend, what is your wife like? My neighbor sat up, threw a side glance at me, looked me down from head to foot, and asked severely, Then you know my wife from Warsaw, eh? Not in the least, I answered. I only mean in case I am ever in Conscavalia, so that I may recognize her. So that you may recognize her, he smiles reassured. I'll give you a sign. She has a mole on the left side of her nose. The Jew got down from the chaise, giving me a cold and distant farewell as he stood on the step. He evidently still suspected me of knowing his wife and of belonging to her miserable family in Warsaw. I was left alone in the chaise, but it was useless to think of sleep. The cool morning had taken hold of me. My literary overcoat blew out in the wind, and I felt chilly all over. I shrank together in the corner. The sun began to shine outside. It may be that I was riding through beautiful country. The early rays may have kissed hilltops and green trees and slid down a glassy river, but I hadn't the courage to open the little window. A Jewish author fears the cold, I began, as the Jew put it, to think out a story, but other thoughts came in between. Two different worlds. A man's world and a woman's world, a world with Talmudic treatises on goring oxen and ditches and incendiary fires and the damages to be paid for them, and a world with storybooks that are sold by weight. If he reads, she goes to sleep. If she reads, he goes to sleep. As if we were not divided enough, as if we had not already French noses, English sticks, Dutch Georges, Lithuanian pigs, Polish beggars, Palestinian tramps, 
as though every part of our body were not lying in a different place and had not a resounding nickname, as though every part, again, had not fallen into smaller ones. Chassidim, Misnagrim, Germans, as though all this were not, we must needs divide ourselves into men and women and every single narrow, damp, and dirty Jewish room must contain these two worlds within itself. These two at least ought to be united. To strive after their unification is a debt every Yiddish writer owes his public. Only, the writers have too many private debts besides. One requires at least one additional Parnassia, as he said. My reflections about an additional Parnassia were broken in upon a few sharp notes on the postilion's horn. But I did not leave the chaise. I was just feeling a little warmer, and the sun had begun to pour in his beams. I got a new neighbor, and, thanks to the bright daylight, I saw his face plainly and even recognized him. It was an old acquaintance. We had skated together as children, played at Baker's, we were almost comrades. Then I went to the dingy, dirty cheder, and he to the free, lightsome gymnasium. When I did not know the lesson, I was beaten. When I answered right, they pinched my cheek. It hurt either way. He was sometimes kept in, and sometimes he got fives. I broke my head over the Talmud. He broke his over Greek and Latin. But we stuck together. We lived on neighborly terms. He taught me to read in secret, lent me books, and in after years we turned the world upside down as we lay on the green grass beside the river. I wanted to invent a kind of gunpowder that should shoot at great distances, say one hundred miles. He, a balloon, in which to mount to the stars and bring the people up there to a sense of order and enlightenment. We were dreadfully sorry for the poor world. She was stuck in the mud. And how to get her out? Ungreased wheels, lazy horses, and the driver, asleep. Then I married, and he went to a university. We never corresponded. I heard later that he had failed, and instead of a doctor, had become an apothecary somewhere in a small country town. I all but cried for joy when my new neighbor entered the chaise, and my heart grew warm. My hands stretched themselves out. My whole body leaned toward him, but I held myself back. I held myself back with all my strength. There you are, I thought. It is Yannick Polnivsky, our late sequestrator's son. He was my playfellow. He had a large embrace and wanted to put his arms round the whole world and kiss its every limb, except the ugly growths which should be cut away. Only, there you are again, present-day times. Perhaps he's an anti-Semite, breathing death and destruction in the newspapers. Perhaps now we Jews are the excrescences that need removing from Europe's shapely nose. He will measure me with a cold glance, or he may embrace me, but tell me at the same time that I am not as other Jews. But I was mistaken. Polnivsky recognized me, fell upon my neck, nor had I spoken a word before he asked me how I liked this vile anti-Semitism. It is, he said to me, of course in Polish, a kind of cholera, 
an epidemic. Some say it's political. I don't believe it, said Polnivsky. Politicians invent nothing new. They create no facts. They only use those which exist, suppress some, and make the most of others. They can fan the flame of hellfire, but not a spark can they kindle for themselves. It is human nature, not the politician, that weaves the thread of history. The politicians plate it, twist it, knot it, and entangle it. Anti-Semitism is a disease. The politician stands by the patient's bedside like a dishonest doctor who tries to spin out the sickness. The politician makes use of anti-Semitism. A stone flies through the air and Bismarck's assistant directs it through the window of the shul. Otherwise, other panes would be smashed. Does anyone raise a protesting fist? Immediately, a thin, shrinking Jewish shoulder is thrust beneath it. Otherwise, other bones would crack. But the stone, the fist, the hatred, the detestation, these exist of themselves. Who die of a physical epidemic? Children, old people, and invalids. Who fall victims to a moral pestilence? The populace, the decadent aristocrat, and a few lunatics who caper around and lead the dance. Only the healthy brains resist. How many healthy brains have we? I asked. How many? <laughs> Unhappily, very few, replied Polnivsky. There was a short, sad silence. I do not know what my neighbor's thoughts may have been. It seemed to me that the strongest and best-balanced brains had not escaped infection. There are two different phases in history, one in which the best and cleverest man leads the mass, and one in which the mass carries the best and cleverest along with it. The popular leader is a Columbus in search of new happiness, a new America for mankind, but no sooner is there scarcity of bread and water on board than the men mutiny and they lead. The first thing is to kill somebody, the next to taste meat, and still their hatred. And I don't suppose, said Polnivsky, that I'm fishing for compliments, that I consider myself an esprit fort who runs no danger of infection, an oak tree no gale can dislodge. No, brother, he went on, I'm no hero. I might have been like the rest. I also might have been torn like a decayed leaf from the tree of knowledge and whirled about in the air. I might have tried to think with the rest of the dead leaves that it was a ball, and we were dancing for our enjoyment, that the wind was our hired musician who played to us on his flute. I was saved by an accident. I learned to know a Jewish woman. Listen. I leaned toward my neighbor. His face had grown graver, darker. He rested his elbows on his knees and supported his head with his hands. But don't suppose, he said again, that I discovered the heroine of a romance, a strong character that breaks through bolt and bar and goes proudly on its way. Don't suppose that she was an exception, an educated woman full of the new ideas, or, in fact, any ideal at all. No, I learned to know a simple Jewish woman, one of the best but one of the best of those who are most to be pitied. I learned to love her, and, I'll tell you the truth, 
Whenever I read anything against Jews in general, she comes back to my mind with her soft, sad eyes, stands before me and begs, Do not believe it. I am not like that. He's lost in thought. The story is a simple one. He rouses himself and begins afresh. We have not written to one another the whole time, and you don't know what has happened to me, so I'll tell you briefly. I'm only going as far as Lukevia. On leaving the gymnasium, I entered the university and studied medicine. I did not finish the course. It was partly my comrade's fault, partly the teacher's, and most of all my own. I had to leave and become an apothecary. Had to marry, take my marriage portion, and set up a shop full of cod liver oil in a little out-of-the-way town. But I was fortunate in many ways. I had a good father-in-law who was prompt in fulfilling the contract, a pretty wife. It was a little bit of a town. My wife's name was Maria. I see her before me now, turning round helplessly from the looking-glass. Her golden curls refuse to submit to the comb. They fly merrily in all directions. They will not be twisted into the wreath which was just then the fashion. Slender, and such good, laughing, sky-blue eyes. We were not much disturbed by my professional duties. The town was too poor, and an apothecary shop where there is no doctor isn't worth much. There was little doing, but we lived in a paradise, and we were always on the veranda. It was summertime, side by side, hand in hand. And what should have claimed our interest? We had enough to live on, and as for going out, where were we to go? The veranda overlooked nearly the whole town. The low, sagging houses, broad, black, wooden booths that leaned, as though in pity, over the roll and apple cellars at their wretched stalls before the house doors, as though they wanted to protect the old, withered, wrinkled faces from the sun. The town had once been rich, the booths full of all kinds of produce and fruits, the market full of carts, peasants and brokers, Sometimes even a great nobleman would be seen among the white peasant coats and the grey caftans, at least so they assured me in the town. But the Shuazi and the railroad had thrown everything out. The streets were empty, the booths filled with decayed onions and pieces of cheese, all that was left of the good times. Poor as poor can be. Ten traders threw themselves on every cartload of corn brought in by the peasants, raised the price, came to an agreement, promised cessation money, and bought it in common. But not one of the ten could find in his pockets the wherewith to pay, and they borrowed money on interest. There were one hundred tailors to a pair of trousers, fifty cobblers to put in one patch. In all my born days I never saw such poverty. We kept away from the town as much as possible. The happy are selfish, but somehow we could not help noticing a young housewife opposite, not more than eighteen or twenty at most, and we could neither of us take our eyes off her, and she apparently couldn't take hers off us. It was an unusual sight. Imagine a beauty, a 
perfect picture set in a frame as dirty as only a jewish window in a small town can be beneath a dreadfully bent roof imagine a pair of sad soft dreamy eyes and an alabaster white face and under a hairband she made a terribly sad impression on us for hours together she would stand leaning in the window her fingers twisted together staring at us or else at the stars and swallowing her tears we saw that she was always alone your men never have any time to spare always unhappy and wistful her face spoke for her she is a stranger here we decided she has come from a larger house less shut in and she longs to be far away her heart yearns after a freer life she also wanted to live to live and to be loved no you may say what you like but you do sometimes sell your daughters it is true that after a while they forget they are pious and good and patient but who shall count the tears that fall over their saddened faces till the store's exhausted or note what the heart suffers till it resigns itself to its living death and why should it be so just because they are good and pious you should have seen the husband yellow shrunk together i saw him twice a day go out in the morning and come home at night a shame you will believe i had no answer ready we were both silent for a time and then polnivsky went on once we missed her she did not appear at the window all day she must be ill we thought that evening the husband came in the yellow creature and asked for a remedy what sort i don't know he said a remedy for whom you want to know that too for my wife what's wrong with her i'm sure i don't know she says her heart hurts her and that said polnivsky was the occasion of our becoming acquainted i won't be long about it i'm a bit of a doctor too and i went back with him polnivsky had begun to talk in broken sentences he looked for cigarettes at last he broke off altogether and opened his traveling bag and commenced to hunt for matches meanwhile i was tormented by suspicions i now looked at polnivsky with other eyes his story had begun to pain me who can read a man who knows all that is in him i began to think that i might have before me a christian weasel who stole into jewish henhouses he is too indignant about the fate of jewish daughters he is too long looking for matches he is ashamed of something why will he not be long about it why won't he tell me the whole story in detail who knows what part he played in it if not the old part of the serpent in paradise why won't his conscience let him speak out there it is again a jewess then why not at one time it was a merit to christen her now the approved thing is to incite her to rebel against her god her parents her husband her whole life it is called liberalism entering a prison and letting in a breath of fresh air a few rays of sunshine awakening the prisoner giving him a few gingerbreads and then going 
not seen the prisoner grind his teeth as the rusty key turns in the lock or how his face darkens how convulsively he breathes how he tears his hair or else if he still can weep how he waters with bitter tears the mouldy bread at which the mice have been gnawing while he slept to waken the dark slumbering and oppressed heart of a jewish woman strikes a romantic chord to fan the flame of unknown or smouldering feelings to kiss and then good-bye bolt the door she must make the best of it we have been slaked for so long with bitterness gall and hatred that now when we are offered bread and salt we feel sure it must be poisoned even though the hand that holds it out to us shakes with pity even though there are tears in the eyes and words of comfort on the lips it is so hard to believe in it all for we also are infected we also have succumbed to the plague meanwhile polnivsky had found his matches and i unwillingly accepted a cigarette we smoked the chaise filled with blue smoky rings i watched them following them with my eyes and thought thus vanish both good and evil we made each other's acquaintance said my christian neighbor but nothing came of it in the way of closer friendship why not i asked astonished we went on looking at each other like the best of friends but she could not come to us nor we to her she had but to try it it was a most orthodox town where every one but the feldsher and the lady's tailor wore kaftans and there was something besides i don't know what that kept us back then the worst misfortune befell me that can befall a man the apothecary's shop brought in next to nothing and my wife began to fail in health i saw more clearly every day that she was declining there was no hope of saving her she needed italy and i could not even provide her with enough to eat and you know when people are in that state of health they're full of hope and do not believe in their illness the whole pain the whole anguish has to be suppressed buried deep in the heart and no matter how the heart is aching you have to smile and wear a smooth brow it dies within you every second and yet you must help to make plans for this time next year settle about enlarging the house buying a piano his voice changed i am not equal to describing to living through those times again but my sorrow and her sorrow brought us nearer together lukevia appeared in the distance i will tell you in the few minutes i have left that anyone so unhappy as that woman and at the same time so full of sympathy and compassion for others i never saw and all so simple so natural without any exaggeration she never left maria's bedside she got round her husband to lend me money at a lower rate of interest she was our watcher our housekeeper our cook our most devoted friend and when maria died it was almost harder to comfort her than me then it was i became convinced that hatred between nations is not natural 
there's a lot of trouble in the world and the more passionate would protest only the false scribe the political advocate drafts instead of denunciation of the jews i saw clearly that the jews are not inimical to us that we can live in peace lukevia draws nearer and nearer to us or we to it and still i'm afraid of the end i interrupt him and ask and what became of the woman how should i know i buried my wife sold the apothecary's shop and cried when i said good-bye to my neighbor and that's all now i live in lukevia i'm not doing well there either and what was the name of the little town you lived in before gonskevolia your neighbor was tall and pale yes thin yes you know her he asked looking pleased she has a mole on the left side of her nose a mole laughed yonick what an idea i think i must have made a mistake and say perhaps on the right side my dear fellow what are you talking about perhaps you did not notice and her husband is yellow-skinned yes called chaim i think not and yet perhaps devil may care but her name is hannah ach nonsense sarah i remember i called her solruchna i shouldn't have forgotten her name i was the fool are there so few jewish women leading similar lives end of section three recording by jennifer levine sunnyvale california